Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, well, today is the second Sunday after the Epiphany in year C of the lectionary. You say, well, how about that? Well, what that means, this occurs once every three years, it means our gospel text is John 2, 1 through 11. And oh, how I love John 2, 1 through 11. I I look forward to this Sunday. John chapter 2, verse 10. But you have kept the best wine until now. I want to preach on vintage Christianity. In winemaking, vintage is the year in which the wine is made. But very often, vintage is the word that is used to describe a wine of exceptional quality. Thus, the steward at the wedding feast of Cana was in, was in effect saying, you have kept the vintage wine until now. So there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. I've done a wedding in Cana of Galilee, believe it or not. This was a long time ago. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. This is, this is before Jesus has worked any miracles. This is after his baptism, after his wilderness temptation, but before he has worked even one miracle. There's this wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's a day's walk from Nazareth. I know because Perry and I have done it. We have walked. From Nazareth to Cana, it's a day's walk. The mother of Jesus was invited to this wedding, as was Jesus, and as was a number of his disciples. And so they go to the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Now, in those days, in that time, at that place, weddings were... Extraordinary events. It was more than a ceremony and a reception. They were multiple day feasts. You would have a feast for days. And so, of course, preparing for such a thing is is quite an endeavor. And so the mother of Jesus is there, and Jesus is there, and some of Jesus' disciples are there. They've been invited to this multiple day wedding feast. Now in the course of the feast, apparently early on, a catastrophe occurred. For whatever reason, somehow there'd been a serious miscalculation. And the wine ran out. This cannot happen. This is beyond embarrassing in that culture. It would verge on shame. 
that you invite the guests and you're going to have this multiple day wedding feast, but early on the wine is gone. The mother of Jesus, she seems like the kind of person, you know, that's just aware, knows what's going on. You know those kind of people that a lot of people don't know what's going on. Maybe you're at a party, but there's one person that kind of knows what's going on. Mary seems like that person. And she's aware that they have run out of wine, which will mean the party's going to be over pretty soon. Mary seems to be maybe one of the first to be aware of this, of this catastrophe. And she goes to her son, Jesus, and just whispers to him, they have no wine. And there's this cryptic exchange back and forth between the two. It seems to be just beyond my ability to really interpret what's going on there. I'm not quite sure. But I know that it ends up with Mary saying to the servants there at the wedding feast, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. They're empty, but they are six water pots of stone. They were used for the Jewish rites of purification. They would be used to fill the mikvahs for ritual bathing. Let's say they have 30 gallons apiece. That's, uh, that's 180 gallons that you would have to draw from the well and pour into these. And the mother of Jesus says to the servants, now whatever he says to you, do it. And what Jesus says to them is, let's, uh, let's fill up the water pots. Which this is a strange thing to do at a wedding feast. There's a time and place for everything. This is not the time for purity rites. For ritual bathing in a mikvah. But the mother had said, whatever he says to you, do it. And so they go to the arduous labor of filling six water pots of stone with water. They filled them up to the brim. And then something happens. Jesus, oh, we're not told exactly. The actual moment of the miracle is not recorded, but I can only presume that Jesus blesses the six water pots of stone filled to the brim with water drawn by the servants. And then Jesus says, now, take some of this. To the chief steward, the water has become wine. The water has become wine. 180 gallons. In the way we bottle wine today, that's a thousand bottles of wine. Take some of this to the chief steward. Apparently the chief steward may not quite be aware of what's happened. We don't know. But the servants take the water now made wine to the chief steward. He's kind of a sommelier. You know, that's how you become a chief steward of the wedding feast. And he takes a sip and he's astounded. It's the best wine he's ever experienced and he's 
a bit in the dark. He doesn't know where this wine has come from. He doesn't know. The servants know. The steward doesn't know what has happened. He assumes that somehow the groom is behind all of this. And so the steward goes to the groom and says, ha, you're something else. You know what everybody does. Everybody always serves the best wine first. And then after people have had plenty to drink, out comes the inferior. You start with the Brunello de Montalcino, and then you move on to the Boone's Farm. But not you. You, my friend, have kept the best wine, the vintage wine, until now. This is the first of the signs of Jesus. His disciples saw the beauty and the glory in it, and they believed in him. All right, how shall I preach this? That's just the story. How shall I preach this? I've got all kinds of options. I could preach on how this is Jesus' first miracle. And it's a whimsical miracle. It's not, it's not a matter of life and death. Yes, it would be embarrassing. Yes, it would verge on being shameful that they ran out of wine. But, you know, it's not the same as somebody having leprosy or somebody lying near death's door or someone, in fact, who is already, a little girl's already died. Come quick. It's not that. It's whimsical. The purpose, it seems to be, is for Jesus just to keep the party going so it doesn't end too soon. I could preach on that. I could preach on how John the Evangelist has arranged the second chapter of his gospel. The very next story is Jesus in Jerusalem cleansing the temple. He's moved it, John has, from the end of Jesus' ministry, which is actually where it occurs, and he moves it up into the second chapter so that he can have these two stories. Turning the water to wine at Cana of Galilee and cleansing the temple in Jerusalem side by side. That in Cana, Jesus makes wine to keep a party going, and in Jerusalem, he makes a whip to shut the temple down. I could preach on that. I could preach on how John the Baptist drank no wine, but Jesus of Nazareth turned water into wine because it's Jesus who brings the party. John prepares the way, but the party doesn't start until Jesus is on the scene. I could preach on that. I could preach on how Mary plays a pivotal role in the miracle. And I could talk about the cooperation of, well, the human and the divine in the process of the miraculous. I could preach on that. I could preach on how Jesus revealed his glory to his disciples and they believed in him. I could preach on how beauty can lead us to faith in Christ. I could have sermon titles like The Beginning of Miracles, Wine and Whip, Let's Get This Party Started, A Mother and Son Miracle of Beauty and Faith. Those are all options. But here's the thing. My life has become so intertwined with the story of the wedding feast at Cana that it has become the primary way that I tell my born again again story. Every time I read about how Jesus turned the water to wine, I feel a deep personal connection with the story. It's become my story, or at least some of my story. 
And when the gospel stories become our stories, this is when scripture is doing its most profound work in our life. I love the whole Bible, but I have a particular love for the account of Jesus' first miracle. My love for this story is such that whenever I just hear the word Cana, it makes me happy. When I hear the baffled steward saying, but you have kept the best wine until now, I think that's my story too. The story of how in midlife, Jesus turned the water to wine and I discovered the vintage that I'd been looking for all of my life. The two most dangerous times of my life occurred 30 years apart at age 15 and age 45. At 15, the danger was the roads I was beginning to walk down. You know how perilous 15 can be. A 15-year-old can go a lot of directions. And the directions I was choosing was going to lead to trouble. I was in danger at age 15. At 45, the danger was that I wouldn't walk down any more roads. At 15, the danger was the risk that I would venture. At 45, the danger was that I would no longer venture risk. You know, there's a time to play it safe and there's a time to risk everything. Blessed is the one who, concern, who can discern the time of life that they're in. Is it a time to play it safe? Is it a time to risk everything? At 15, in my tender years, I was in danger of my life, at least for that season, being wrecked. At 45, I was in danger of my life being withered. And both times, Jesus saved me. <laughs> both times, Jesus saved me. I mean, yeah, I want a neon sign, Jesus saves. That may be a religious cliche for some, but not for me. I mean, I know it's true, Jesus saves. Jesus is the hero of my story. So let me tell how Jesus saved me the second time, how I was born again again. Around 20 years ago, the wine of Christian faith had begun to run out for me. Okay, see, I, I, I came into the, at 15, I was in danger, beginning to go down the wrong roads with the wrong people, all, you know, the stuff that can happen to a teenager, especially one that has a rebellious streak. And Jesus came into my life and saved me. And everybody knew it. And I was instantly swallowed up into this thing called the Jesus movement. And the wine was good. It was good wine. It was. It was a good season, a good time, a good thing was happening. Not perfect, not the best, but good, really good in fact. But then time went by. By time, I mean, you know, decades. 
And you know, everybody serves the good wine first and then the inferior. And what had started off so good was now, eh, eh. It was inferior. I'll put it that way. It was inferior. The kind of faith that I knew 30 years on after beginning with Jesus in the context of the Jesus movement of the 1970s, the kind of faith I knew and experienced 30 years on was inferior. It was deficient. Wine Spectator would not give it a good score. And then the real danger was that it would completely run out altogether. There'd just be no more wine. It'd just be gone. That began somewhere around 20 years ago. I mean, uh, you can say it different ways. I'm working with the metaphor of wine. You say, you know, the thrill was gone. It was... I wasn't, I wasn't having a crisis of faith about Jesus. It was just the party itself was starting to feel kind of lame. Again, I'm working with the metaphor. What I'm saying is I wasn't doubting Jesus, but it just seemed like the Christianity I knew was unworthy of the beauty of Christ. I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know if there was anything I could do about it. But I began to be aware of it. Now, I know me. I really do. I've known me for a long time. And I know that I would not have left the party. I'm loyal like that. I mean, I pledge myself to something. I'm going to stick with it. That's just how I am. I would have dutifully remained and doggedly trudged on. But dang, that's a sad way to end the story. And in the end, he doggedly trudged on. Well, minus a miracle, that would have been the best case scenario, that I would doggedly trudge on, and I would have. But in the worst case scenario, I'd have doggedly trudged on and then suffered the fate of so many of my comrades. And I don't want to talk about that. It's too sad, it's too tragic to even think about. 18 years ago, moving on a little bit, 18 years ago, I was at the party and the wine was inferior and running out. And I wasn't sure what would happen next. Now, I'm telling this story from the vantage of retrospect, so I kind of, in the moment, though, you don't really know what's happening. I mean, I was, I was aware of an inferiority, of a deficiency, of something not right, of something running out, of it not being what it once had been. I was aware of that. But what would happen next? Well, somebody must have been praying for me. Do you pray for people? We need to pray for people. We don't need to talk God into being good to people. That's not the point of it. But somehow our prayers are part of how people maintain a connection with God. And, and you're sort of maybe laying cable for God's grace to reach them in a new way as you pray for people. Somebody must have been praying for me. He has no wine. Somebody must have been observant. Somebody must have paid attention and said, he has no wine. Who was it? I don't know. 
Was it Mother Mary? He has no wine. Or was it my grandmother Mary? Mary Zond. Oh. I think that's a distinct possibility. You say, was she alive then? Well, not... I mean, she had died, but she's also alive. She can also still pray. She can pray for her grandson. He has no wine. Right around this time, 18 years ago, a voice from very deep within me began to say, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. And I did. I prayed, even though I didn't really know how to pray, but I did. I prayed. I fasted. And I read. And I read. And I read. And I read. I filled six water pots of stone up to the brim. Perry was in my study on Thursday when I was preparing what I'm saying right now and I, I looked over at my bookshelves. Okay, now I, I need to explain something here before I go further. I need a librarian is the first thing I want to say. And that's only, that's about a sixth. There's about 800 books in that picture and there's about a sixth of them. The ones on the floor are ones that I had been, I'd had at home for different purposes and writing, and now I've brought them back, and they just haven't found their way onto shelves yet. But anyway, Perry was in there. And, oh, and by the way, you might notice there's a painting on the left on top of that bookshelf. Can you figure out what that's about? That's Jesus turning water to wine. But anyway, I just, Perry was in there, she was doing something, I don't remember what, and I and I pointed to my bookshelves there and I said, you know what those are, Perry? And she said, bookshelves? And I said, no. Those are water pots of stone that I filled to the brim. That's what those are. Those are my water pots of stone that I filled to the brim. And that Jesus turned to wine. Now, bear with me. This is my story. To fill six water jars to the brim by reading a thousand books. That's my story. It's not your story. I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm telling you my story in which Jesus is the hero. Remember, no two miracles happen the same way. There's always our part to play, but no two miracles happen the same way. Some are told to go wash in the, in the pool of Siloam. Some are told to go show themselves to the priests. Some are told to take up their bed and walk. Some are told to remove the stone. Some are told to fill six water pots of stone to the brim. I was told to read, well, I was told to read this book. I was told to read this book. You've maybe heard this story. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but just, this is, this is where it began. This is, this is, Book numero uno in the water to wine miracle. Perry found this book in our house. She, don't know, she didn't know how it got there. She just found it in our house. She hadn't read it. I hadn't read it. 
I had just prayed, God, show me what to read. Five minutes later, she walks in the room, walks up to me, hands me this book and says, here, I think you should read this book. The water was starting to turn to wines. The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. I've told that story a lot. This is the second one. The second one I read. The Spirit of Early Christian Thought by Robert Louis Wilkin. An elegant and learned introduction to the giants of Christian antiquity. This book shows brilliantly how the church can live by continually pondering the word of God. It's an introduction to the church fathers. How did this book come? Right about that same time, just right about that same time, 18 years ago, I was in Barnes and Noble, and it, it just cried out to me. It was newly published. It was sitting on them. It wasn't sitting like this. It was like this where you could see it. Huh, the spirit of early Christian thought. Maybe that's what I need, something a little older. And then I read hundreds and hundreds of more. That's my story. It's not what you need to do. Let me make it clear that the books that I read did not work a miracle in my life. Did you hear what I just said? The books that I read did not work a miracle in my life. No more than filling six water jars to the brim can work a miracle. The miracle was not the servants filling the water pots with water. That's not the miracle, but it was necessary for the miracle to occur. Jesus took all those books I read and turned them into the wine of vintage Christianity. I'm not telling you to read any books. I'm telling you my story. The Spirit will lead you your own way. But this is, my, this is what happened for me. I had to fill it up to the brim, and I did. And then Jesus is the one. He's the hero of the story. He worked the miracle, and he turned the water to wine. And I will forever be grateful to Jesus for turning the water to wine and saving me a second time. Thank you, Jesus. I mean, I mean this. It's deep within me. This gratitude to Jesus for what he did. Now, when the water turned to wine in my life, many didn't know where the wine came from. And so they were confused. And in their confusion, they imagined a lot of mistaken and wrong things. But I knew where the water came from. I was the servant who drew the water. I knew where the wine came from. And I knew who performed the miracle. It wasn't me. It wasn't Dallas Willard. It wasn't Robert Louis Wilkin. It was Jesus. They supplied the water, but Jesus turned it to wine. And today I find myself saying, thank you, Jesus. You've kept the best wine until now. And I mean that. I'm more excited to be a Christian than ever in my life. I'm more enthralled by Jesus. I'm more eager in the morning to pray and go into the scriptures than ever in my life. The party is not over at all. Jesus has saved the best wine until now. That's a miracle. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. Now, I'm just about done. In what I have to say next, everyone can listen. Everyone can listen, but I'm not probably speaking to everyone. Everyone can listen, 
But I'm really speaking to a particular group of people. I'm speaking to those who probably, though we can never know, but who are probably in the second half of your life. I mean, we don't know the day of our death. Life is but a vapor. Who knows these things? But as far as you can best calculate, you're probably in the second half. So we might, we might say 40s and up. At this stage of life, you really do have a choice. You can go from the good wine to the inferior wine. And to be honest, this is what most people do. It's been good. Now it's not so good. And that's what the chief steward says that most people do. They serve the best first, and then later on, out comes the inferior. And there's always the risk that it runs out altogether. That's choice one. The second choice is you can go from good wine to the best wine. This is what Jesus can do. Jesus can bring you in the second half of your life the best wine that you've ever had. That can happen. Now, if in the second half of life you want to go from good wine to vintage wine, I have three things to say. They're very simple. You can write them down if you like, but they're very simple. Number one, desire it. I mean, if you want that to happen, then really desire it. Apathy is your big enemy. Complacency is your big enemy. Don't coast. Just believe somehow. Just believe somehow the best is yet to come. And kind of lean into that. Say, no, this is not the inferior stage of my life. I'm leaning into the best. I'm leaning into the best. That's number one. Desire it. Number two, listen to your mother. Listen to your mother. Listen to your mother. You say, well, my mother's dead. No, she's not. I'm talking about your mother, the church. Listen to your mother. Now, look, I'm as aware as anybody. You start talking about the church, you say, well, the church has problems. Oh, you're a regular rocket scientist, aren't you? Of course it does. And of course, I am keenly aware of the failures and the transgressions and the sins and the scandals of the church over the past 2,000 years. But I'm also fully aware that doesn't tell the whole story of what the church is. The church is also the repository, the treasury of wisdom that has accumulated over centuries. And your mother has some things to say that are worth hearing and you should listen to. If you're not going to listen to your mother, I don't know how you're going to make it. All then you're left with is inventing your own Christianity all by yourself. And you're not a venter. You're going to come up with the lousiest wine ever. You're no good at that. Your mother can help you find where they keep the good wine. Listen to your mother. Number three. Stick with Jesus. Just stick with Jesus. There's no such thing as growing beyond Jesus. 
You can tell me that. I'll be kind, I'll be polite, and I won't believe a word of it. That's just good old-fashioned falling away. You reach the point where you think, well, Jesus is good, but he's not, you know, there's, there's others too. He's not entirely unique. Oh, no, he's entirely unique. He's the only begotten son of God. He's the logos made flesh. Desire it, listen to your mother, and stick with Jesus. He's the one that turns water to wine. If you'll stick with Jesus and do what he says, you'll see his glory, his beauty, and believe in him in a deeper way than you ever have before. This is my story. But you can have your own version of it too. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. Oh, I preach myself happy. I do. I, I feel happy. Thank you, Jesus. I just feel like we could. I'd like to have a second worship service right now. I'm ready to have a worship service. Hallelujah. Well, we are going to come to the table of the Lord. Bread and wine, body and blood of Christ, and participate in it. And everybody, everybody's invited. Everyone is invited. Everyone. Everyone. You say, oh, yeah, but you don't know my story. I know Jesus' story. And I know Jesus died for you and Jesus loves you and Jesus calls you. You come to the table, someone has bread. They'll say the body of Christ broken for you. Take a piece of it. Someone will have a cup. They'll say the blood of Christ shed for you. Take the bread, dip it in the cup. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. All right, let's prepare our hearts by first confessing our apostolic faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Join with me now in making our confession of sin so that we can receive the forgiveness of the Lord. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. 
the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you.